The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome everyone to the show today. I'm glad you could join me from wherever you are in the world. Crazy times, right? I mean, a lot of us may be sitting home and listening to this as we're broadcasting live here, like I do every Wednesday, 1 Pacific, 3 Central, 4 Eastern. You can always catch me here live on the air on unityonlineradio.org, or you can get the podcast later on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, all of the usual suspects. Uh, so I don't know, wherever you may be, <laughs> welcome, everybody. Um, I'm actually glad that we can share some information today, um, and it won't be about coronavirus, so be rest assured about that. I'm sure we can all get that information if we need it. So today I've got a really great guest. I've been spending some time with his book, and I'm really excited to share this information with you. So I'm glad you could join me from wherever you are. So if you don't suffer from back pain, chances are you probably know someone who does. And I've been doing some research on this. According to a study from Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute, back problems are among patients' most frequent complaints to their doctors. Nearly 65 million Americans report a recent episode of back pain. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, persistent or chronic back pain. And as a result of this, a lot of people are limited in certain everyday activities, which is really sad. Back pain is the sixth most costly condition in the United States. And healthcare costs and indirect costs due to back pain are over 12 billion with a B per year. And those are some really scary numbers. Back pain is also the leading cause of work loss days as well as work limitations. And to deal with this, many people opt for surgery. A lot of times that's not the best case scenario. Back surgery is a booming business. I was reading about this. About 500,000 Americans undergo surgery each year for low back problems alone. And unfortunately, that doesn't always buy relief, as we're going to find out today. My guest is going to offer some great information about spine surgeries, back surgeries, how to decide if you actually need one, ways to heal from pain naturally. So we're going to get some really great information. Dr. David Hanscom is a renowned complex deformity spinal surgeon with 30 years of experience. And his revolutionary approach to treating chronic back pain has helped hundreds of patients get relief and go back to living their lives pain. So I've been spending some time with his recent book, Do You Really Need Pain Take Control to Find Surgeon's Advice. And Dr. Hanscom joins me today. And thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, th thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be here. I'm so glad you could join me amidst all the craziness. And right. I'm sure you probably get people, even though you're a spine surgeon, you probably get a lot of people that are asking you about the virus and, and all of that. So just crazy times ahead. Yeah, this is a catastrophic event. And, you know, back pain and chronic pain is a very stressful situation. And unfortunately, in medicine, if we can't see the exact problem, we tend to say, well, there's nothing really wrong. So people don't really feel believed, which even creates more stress. And of course, with the environment the way it is right now with the real threat of the coronavirus, why people's anxiety goes up. Turns out anxiety is actually not a psychological issue, it's just a chemical response to a, response to a threat. And when your body chemistry is off, it doubles the nerve conduction and you feel the pain more. So you have this cycle of, let's say, back pain to start the discussion. Then you're anxious about it, which means your body stress chemicals have gone up, which again, the animal studies have shows doubles the nerve conduction, and then you feel the pain more. So you have this horrible cycle going that really makes back pain much, much worse. Right. So what we're dealing with now, um, you know, it's, it's so unprecedented, but yeah, I mean, this is causing people so much anxiety and stress that if they already are dealing with back pain, it, it's definitely, it's making it worse. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about you know, I was reading, uh, I've got both your books here, uh, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And then the other one, Back in Control. And you've been doing this for so long, you you actually retired from being an actual spine surgeon 
to really pursue um, your interest in solving chronic pain issues that you were seeing your patients because just over the years, you were just seeing that surgery wasn't working. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that decision because you... Well, from the very, very beginning when I started my practice in 1985, why my rehab friends and myself felt there was way too much spine surgery being done. And it's only gotten way worse. It got way worse in the mid-1990s with the new instrumentations they have. And then what's happened the last five years, why they've gone from one and two level fusions to eight, 10, and 12 level fusions with a much higher complication rate and even a lower success rate. What finally put me over the edge is that there's not one research paper that documents that back surgery works for back pain, not one. And so then I'm watching people <clears throat> consistently go into surgery for back pain. Probably 70% of spine surgery in general should not be done. With back pain surgery, none of it should be done. Right. So people are just getting the wrong information. They're being told that they should they should get surgery and that that's really not the best case scenario. And even in my own experience, I've never had back surgery. I've had some back issues in the past, but my right. husband had some really horrible sciatic pain, you know, about eight years ago. And right. they really push you towards surgery. The doctors, they they really scare you and they tell you, look, if you don't do this, the pain will right. never go away. And in, in my experience, just watching what happened with my husband, he opted to do a physical therapy technique called Egoscue. Mm -hmm. And he's been, he's been pretty much pain free ever since. I mean, if there's been any twinges, he'll go through the physical therapy exercises that they give you, they give you a menu that's fine for you to use. And I was really amazed and, and blown away at the at watching his experience because I was in that room while they're telling him this, right. and I was really thinking, well, maybe you should get the surgery, you know? Right. Um, well, I think spine so surgery right now to... has actually become somewhat predatory because this story yeah. you just told is incredibly consistent. I will say that sciatica in general responds better to surgery than back pain. So with sciatica, you do have a bone spur that's pinching the nerve, and the sciatica doesn't resolve. The surgery does work very nicely. With back pain, it essentially never works. The success rate, do you know how, have you, did you ever see my book, what the success rate is for a back fusion for back pain? It's 22%. Oh, I was, was going to ask you that later. I, I mean, your book, there is some really scary uh, information in here. Just, you know, a lot of the, the patient stories that, that you share in the book, enjoy those. Well, it's disturbing. And what happened is that about two and a half years ago, I ran across a patient who was 32 years old. He had had, he had, had back pain. He had a lesion in his spine called a spondylolisthesis, but it was stable. In other words, he did not need surgery. The only time you start doing spine fusions for any type of back issues is when the spine is unstable. In other words, you're stabilizing or welding the spine together. What you're trying to do is stabilize a segment that's unstable. He had a stable spine. They did a rather complex operation on him. They paralyzed him. So I probably see three to five patients every week with surgery done what I consider normal spines for people's age. And the downside to those operations are often catastrophic. This one was catastrophic, but not, unfortunately not that unusual. So here you have a 32-year-old kid who, who would have done extremely well with a good rehab program, ends up in an operation that he didn't need. He'll spend the rest of his life paralyzed. The first step in solving any problem in general in life, whether it's your car mechanic or business deal or buying a house, is actually to understand the problem. So right now, I've actually been strongly attacked for talking to my patients. In fact, I've been told by legal to not talk to my patients because it's not productive enough. Plus, it's not normal for a surgeon to talk to his patients. So that's been happening for years. Second of all, we know that healing, that the essence of solving chronic pain in general is feeling safe, which optimizes your body's chemistry. And we buy it's full of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, which are the good drugs. Your nerve connection slows down. Your sense of well-being goes up. Your physical pain drops dramatically. And it's not a psychological issue. It's about regulating the body's chemistry. So what we found out that before every patient that we did surgery on the last five years of my practice, we would talk to them. We'd see them back for at least three months before we decided to do surgery or not. If we had decided to do the surgery, we'd still see them back every one or two weeks for three months to double check their family situation, their nutrition, their bone density, their stress levels, their sleep, all those things make a difference. And as we optimize people's treatment before the surgery, what we found out is that the pain would often disappear. 
But what happened, even my surgical patients started canceling surgery because the pain disappeared. That was completely unexpected. What happened is I essentially put myself out of business. And my success rate, I'm sorry, my conversion rate to surgery in most surgical practice is about 10 to 30%. My conversion rate of new patients seen compared to those who needed surgery dropped down to 4.5%, which I was excited about in this world's financial model where you're paid literally 8% of your money comes from surgery, why that was obviously very awkward. But again, no cost, no risk, nice rehab. People's pain would disappear and no surgery. So I was shocked. This is even people with sciatica and big bone spurs. But what I eventually found out is that people have had the bone spurs for years. The pain started a few months ago. What happened? And what we found out that is invariably what happened is that people would have horrendous financial stresses, family stresses, spousal stresses, all sorts of things would happen to them. And once we just, we were, I'm not a counselor, did not go into counseling with him, but what we do, we just would be with him while things calmed down. And as things calmed down, the pain would actually disappear. And what would happen, I, in my first book, said, look, if you have a structural problem, do the surgery earlier because people in chronic pain can't tolerate more stress, I'm sorry, more pain. And we found out the other way around, the data says if you operate in the presence of untreated chronic pain, i.e. stress, this, you can make people worse up to 40 to 50% of the time. And we did. I would do the perfect operation, very tight stenosis, matching symptoms, the pain would get worse. But the data is very clear that if you operate in the presence of untreated chronic pain, you can make the patient worse or induce chronic pain at the new surgical site up to 40% of the time. So again, you can actually induce or make pain worse 40 to 50% of the time. The actual success rate for a back fusion for back pain is about 22%. The chances of making you worse is actually almost double the chances of making you better. It was unbelievable. So the other thing that caused me to quit my practice, I was watching people patient after patient undergo surgery they didn't need or have it recommended. They'd come to our office. We would go through the prehab process, rehab before surgery. We would calm people down and watch people go to pain-free, some with surgery, most without. But what would happen, my surgical failures quit happening. I used to tease my fellows and go, look, when was the last time you actually saw a surgical failure in my practice? And it happened occasionally. I'm not saying it would never happen, but it was pretty unusual compared to the norm plus my own historic norm. So it turned out that my practice is the most delightful, productive, enjoyable practice you could imagine. Then the other problem is once somebody's had back surgery that hasn't worked, I'm sorry, let me jump into one part of this really quickly. What the data clearly shows is that disc degeneration occurs as you age. It is not degenerative disc disease. It is not a disease. The data clearly shows that there's no correlation between disc degeneration and pain, yet the medical profession is intent on finding a cause of pain for everything, and this particular problem is not the cause of the pain. It's been well documented. It turns out we're doing these hundreds of thousands of operations on a spine, on, a, on anatomy that's been, docu been documented to not be the cause of the pain. So the better term would be a normally aging disc. That would be the best term. The operation of taking your spine of nice layers of muscles, tendons, and ligaments and turn it into a solid piece of bone with scar tissue, steel rods, et cetera, doesn't really make any logical sense. Then what's happening in the neuroscience data of the last five years has shown very clearly that chronic pain is, is a disease of the brain. In other words, with chronic back pain, I'm sorry, with acute back pain, less than three months, there's a pain center in the brain, there's a pain center in the brain that lights up consistently. Between six to 12 months, when it becomes chronic, the locus of activity goes from the pain center to the emotional center. The current definition of chronic pain is that it is an embedded memory, just like riding a bicycle, that becomes connected with more and more life experiences and the memory can't be erased. So what happens, we're doing a structural intervention on a brain disease and it can't work and guess what, it doesn't work. The other issue that's been fascinating also is that the data is very clear that we know actually the solution to chronic pain. Most physicians, in fact, the data shows that about 20% of physicians are comfortable treating chronic pain, less than 1% enjoy it. And I give lectures all over the country on enjoying the management of chronic pain because people in chronic pain suffer horribly, but you don't believe them. The pain is unrelenting. Their anxiety goes up, their pain goes up, their anger goes up. 
the quality of life falls through the floor. So they become incredibly frustrated because nobody believes them, including the doctors. So we found out by just understanding the complaints, understanding that the that chronic pain is a brain disease by calming down the nervous system, which changes the body's chemistry, nerve conduction improves, the pain would disappear. But we also know that if you do some of these tools that we talked about, they call somatic tools, that you actually can reroute the nervous system around any pain instead of pain pathways. And so it's consistent. We've been very consistent with it. We've been very excited about it. But there's actually nothing more rewarding in my mind than taking a patient who has no hope, no function, not only do they go to pain-free, they actually go to a level of living that they never actually experienced before. So the last five years have been very surprising to me. I'm trained as a very complex surgeon. I'm taught to focus on structure. And I never, ever expected to see people go to pain-free without surgery like I've seen it. And again, the medical profession looks at chronic pain as something to be managed. And there's a growing group of us that understand that chronic pain is a solvable problem. We actually have the answer to chronic pain. So it's been quite a ride for me personally. And I think you saw from my book that I was in chronic pain myself for over 15 years. Nobody could tell me what was going on. I had no idea how I got into it. I came out of it by accident. So it's been incredibly gratifying to take my own very harsh experience and be able to share it, share it with my patients. that go into that as well. So um, I just wanted to talk a little more about that mind-body connection to the back pain because you were saying that pathways sort of form in the brain, right? Like the brain remembers the pain and we have to create different pathways to go around it. Is that right? Well, if you think about the brain in general, somehow we use this term psychological, it's really a programming issue. The neuroscience out of Boston is extremely clear that thoughts and concepts become embedded in our brain the same way that a chair or table does. In other words, there's nothing about this table in front of me that says it's a table unless my brain processes touch, feel, color, temperature, and says, okay, this is a black table that I'm sitting next to. So people forget there's actually nothing that's real unless your brain says it's real or not. And so pain's the same way is that it's like learning a language. You have these impulses coming out your brain. With repetition, it becomes embedded in your nervous system. Once they are embedded, it's like riding a bicycle, you actually cannot unlearn it. And as we all know, if you learn violin or piano as a kid, those circuits may atrophy as you get older, but they're still there. It's when you, you can reconnect to them at any time, but those are permanently embedded pathways. People talk about in terms of, well, this means to be psychological, so we, since we can't see the cause, that's not true. We actually now have functional research MRI scans that show us exactly where the brain's lighting up when you're in chronic pain. Richard did fibromyalgia, the brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Turns out that fibromyalgia is one of my favorite diagnoses. Turns out phantom limb pain, same thing. You can actually rewire around any set of pain pathways. And I've heard some people say, uh, and that's interesting what you're saying about fibromyalgia, because I've heard some people say that, oh, well, that's not a real, that's not a real thing. That's not a real condition or disease. But you're saying you can see the pathways lighting up in the brain, so people are feeling this pain. It's not like they're they're making it up. The pain's always there. I mean, remember, pain is an interpretation of your environment that says danger. People that are born without pain fibers is called congenital indifference to pain, live only to about 10 years old. So if you didn't have pain as a protective mechanism, you wouldn't survive. It is a gift. So when you just because you can't see the source, remember most pain by the way, it does not come from a bone spur. It comes from inflammation, tendonitis, things that you can't see on a test. So if you think that you have to see the cause of the pain, probably 95% of people, quote, don't have a problem. So even from the beginning, when I didn't really understand chronic pain, people come in with consistent complaints. For instance, on a rotator cuff tendonitis, you can't see the actual tear, just inflamed. Hurts like heck, really hurts a lot. So yeah, pain is always real. Fibromyalgia, again, same thing. It's total body pain. The nervous system is hypersensitized. Then people don't sleep. And for instance, there's a study out of Israel that shows lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. If you don't sleep, you'll actually induce chronic low back pain. And that's a big issue that you mentioned in the book. Um, you know, you right. call them the, the modifiers, anxiety, anger, and sleep that right. all contribute 
be to chronic pain. And that's something that a lot of doctors, I don't think, bring up. It certainly wasn't something that was told to my husband while he was in chronic pain. They just were ready to rush you into surgery and put right. you under the knife. So those are all things that are, you know, should definitely be brought up when you're when you're talking to a doctor. So right. when you're with a in a consultation with someone and, you know, you also mentioned in the book, you know, a lot about high levels of stress and anxiety. And it's got to be hard when you're talking with someone, you're trying to help them and someone with stress and anxiety, you know, telling them to just, quote, calm down. I mean, is it really going to change anything? A lot of times it might even make them more anxious. I mean, what do you suggest to people? Maybe you could give us, uh, before we go to break, you know, a, a management tool or something to help manage that kind of anxiety. Well, first of all, anxiety is physiological, not psychological. Second of all, you can't just calm down because the unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second the conscious brain processes 40. So you have a 20 million to 40 mismatch. So yeah, you can't just calm down. So the, I have a website called backincontrol.com, all one word, backincontrol.com. And there's a series of four stages and steps in each stage that go through a sequence of tools and strategies that you can use to start to, near, to decrease your body's chemical reaction. So anxiety is just a sensation generated by your stress response. In other words, elevated adrenaline, cortisol, histamines, and cytokines. As you use tools to actually decrease the stress chemicals, then your feeling of anxiety starts to drop down. Mind over matter absolutely doesn't work. It's a horrible problem. Not about positive thinking, which is another horrible problem. So there are very specific techniques that are extremely doable that help you decrease the body's levels of stress chemicals. So telling people to just, you know, cheer up and think positively, that that's really not going to work. That is a disaster of unmitigated proportion. That actually got me in trouble in the first place. Remember, I was in chronic pain for 15 years, and what got me in deep trouble was positive thinking. And what happens positive thinking, positive thinking is just a global way of suppressing negative thinking, and we try not to think about something, of course, you think about it more. I had an identity of taking on an, an unlimited amount of stress. That's how I became a major spine surgeon. All of a sudden, within 10 minutes, I went from no anxiety, taking on all the stress in the world, to panic attacks in five minutes. And once that panic attack hit for the next 15 years, I could not put that away. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's really hard to manage, especially in the the society that we're in now, not just dealing with the virus, but just things generally are are pretty stress stress laden. You know, people are dealing with unbelievable amounts of, of stress and anxiety. But you did right. offer some um, you know, treatments or techniques in the book and one of them that you called an active meditation and I, right. I thought that was interesting because um, there's been so much study done recently on how the effects of meditation can really just help in in so many ways and do you right. prescribe something like that for people still oh absolutely i mean the bottom line is anxiety is physiological so the way you decrease anxiety you decrease the stress chemicals so what you're doing with mindfulness-type exercises, and I call it active meditation, is that right now, just feel the back of your chair for a second, drop your shoulders, that's it. And what you've done, you've changed your sensory input from racing thoughts to a different physical sensation. And you might have noticed my voice dropped down just a little bit. I do this all day long in the office with my patients. It's the one tool I try to get to do myself most of the day. I maybe succeed only 20 times. But what you're doing with active meditation is you switch sensory input you've now decreased the chemical response. It's very easy, very quick. It's real time. You don't have to stop what you're doing to do this. And so it's just, it is one of the very basic tools. And it's just as simple as making that kind of a, a slight shift to yep. just really, you know, recognizing where you're at. Like, okay, I'm sitting right here, you know, in my, in my office chair, or just kind of leaning back and being more aware of where you are just in that moment. Right. Again, it's not magic. You simply, your brain only really only processes one sensation at a time, even though it's competing. I mean, every sensation is competing for attention every second. Your brain changes every second. But if you, if you happen to be occupied by racing thoughts that are disruptive, um, then you just switch, switch to taste, touch, feel, sound, whatever you want to do. I tend to use sound a lot. We actually did this in surgery where I taught my fellows that, look, you're a little bit frustrated. Just drop your shoulders and just feel the instrument. Just go to a very light touch. And what we found out by doing mindfulness-based surgery, our complication dropped about 80%. It was unbelievable how much difference that made just being connected to the move. 
Wow, 80%. I mean, that's yep. that's a big difference. Right. That's amazing. I, I mean, I wish well, I had the bandwidth. A... I mean, one of my passions is called Awake at the Wound, teaching mindfulness-based surgery. And we just have had the best success just tell, you know, helping people calm down during surgery. Well, hold that thought for a minute. I want to hear some more about some techniques that people can use. We're just going to take a short break. We'll be back uh, in about three minutes. I'm talking about his book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Maybe not. Stay You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I'm Diane Ray. Thanks for coming back after the break. If you've got some back pain, this is the show for you. <laughs> We're going to help you with that. We've been having a great conversation with Dr. David Hanscom about his book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Surgeon's Advice. And the book really goes into detail about the different choices that you have, some of the things that you might be dealing with if you are having back pain and what you can do about it. And Dr. Hanscom has got some amazing experience in this field over 30 years of helping people to recover from back pain. And like I was saying before in the in the previous segment, you know, some of the stories that you share in the book are just really unbelievable about the things that people have gone through to try to solve the pain and the surgeries and things that they've had to endure to try to, to deal with this. And um, I was telling you also about the experience of my husband and the exercises that he was doing in the physical therapy and just the the treatment route that we took to handle his back pain. And when you're dealing with people, I mean, it seems that people want the quick fix, right? I mean, it's very hard to talk to somebody and explain to them, look, if you do this series of exercises for six to eight weeks and it has to be done religiously, things can change. And people just don't want to do that a lot of times. Has that been your experience? You know, I'm not so sure. I mean, I've heard that for a long time, and I think there's a tendency for physicians to say that. But I think the bigger problem is I think the medical professionals, first of all, said there's something wrong with you, and then we can fix it. So I think they've been marketed that we have the fix. There's a research paper that came out two months ago in the Journal of Pain documenting that every treatment we do for chronic knee pain and also chronic back pain doesn't work, period, end of story. So what happens, what I call mainstream medicine is actually way off base. We have no data to support our treatments. Again, as, as I mentioned in the first half of the show, the success rate of a back fusion for back pain is about 22%. And what we're operating on has been documented, documented to be a normally aging disc. That's why I'm quite clear that at least 70% of spine surgery should not be done. When it comes to spine surgery for back pain, it should never be done. There's a friend of mine, Dr. Ian Harris out of Australia, who's been doing research on unnecessary procedures for his whole career. And he thinks, and I agree with him, that doing back surgery for back pain is like a frontal lobotomy. And one of my friends was jokingly saying, well, at least frontal lobotomies work. But what happens is that there's no data. We have no data to support what we're doing. Zero papers in 60 years that support what we're doing. And we're acting like we have data. We don't have any data that supports what we're doing. Wow. So this it's really seems like it's just driven, you know, financially, right? The insurance companies are trying to make more money. They're pushing people to make the decisions to have these expensive and often needless surgery. And, yes. and that's just crazy. That's why it's so important that, you know, you're here and talking about this. And also, I wanted to let people know that, you know, we are live today, <laughs> as I do every Wednesday. So if you had a question, if you're experiencing some back issues, where to turn we have the perfect guest for you here today so you can give us a call on six two five one three five five if you had a question for dr hanscom today um, but yeah the numbers that you were sharing for you know the percentages of surgeries that aren't working out is just unbelievable but i wanted to find out too some of the other things that you mentioned in the book that we can share with our listeners um, some of the things that people can do to really connect with our own healing power. And you say right. in the book that we have, 
you know, the ability to regulate our body's chemistry. And he mentioned, um, you know, a little exercise, a mindfulness exercise that people can do. Do you put people on a protocol of, of certain things to do to kind of tap into this ability that we do have to heal? Well, it turns out that the protocol is very self-directed. Essentially, none of the patients that have gotten better have seen a, quote, psychologist, because, again, it's not a psychological problem. And what happens is that the, it, the, the website's backincontrol.com, and just simply starting on stage one, which is learning about pain, which we're discussing right now. The second one's called expressive writing. And the research has been done since the early 1980s on what's called expressive writing. And there's different versions of it, but the one I have people start out with is, is simply write down your thoughts, positive or negative, and tear them up. And we know that you can't escape your thoughts, but what I think the exercise does, it helps you separate from those. Somehow, every person that's gotten better has started with that one exercise. What I find ironic, and I'll, I'll rant here for a second more, is that there's over a thousand research papers, 1,000, that document how this works. It's incredibly effective. There's no risk, minimal effort. It's like five to 10 minutes, once or twice a day. After my 15 years of suffering from chronic pain, within two weeks after I started expressive writing, somewhat by accident, my symptoms started to abate. And I have a book in front of me called Opening Up by Writing It Down by Dr. James Pennybaker and Dr. Joshua Smythe, who started the original research in the 1980s. And it is stunning how well it works. It helps asthma, rheumatoid arthritis. I just wrote a website post on how writing helps the coronavirus because in the HIV literature, the AIDS epidemic, they found out that the expressive writing could actually decrease the viral load. So it's a stunning exercise. So we combine the expressive writing with the act of meditation. We discuss sleep is a huge deal. Again, lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. We don't know exactly why, but it does. And if you're my patient, what I would have you do, I would work on giving some homework. Look, here's the book. Here's the website. I would ask you to try the expressive writing relaxation tools then what I would focus on as your physician is sleep. Because as you will know, when you're not sleeping, life isn't good. But again, it also directly affects your physical function. So when I first started the process in Sun Valley back in the 1990s, early 2000s, the number one thing we worked on was sleep. Within six weeks, usually with medications, we could get people to sleep. Once people started to sleep, it was game on. Then the final step in stage one, which has been fascinating, Remember, we talked about the way you solve chronic pain is stimulating the brain to change. It's called neuroplasticity. Every second, your brain's forming new neurons, new dendrites, new connections, new myelin. We didn't know that when I was in medical school 30 years ago. So what you're doing is that we ask people never to discuss their pain or medical care with anybody, especially their families. And what happens if you want to discuss your problems and stay stuck on those, while well, you end up reinforcing those because that's where your attention is. So it turns out that the expressive writing sort of releases you. We teach you how to redirect your brain, but you're actually stimulating your brain to change directions, but not discussing your pain is a huge step forward. Wow, that is so interesting. I mean, they need to tell more people that because it seems like the older you get, that's all you hear are people's pain stories. Right. And it turns out that that's just making things worse. So that's one thing that we can do, you know, is right. stop sharing those kind of stories with people. And the expressive writing, I thought that was really incredible, too. And, and you share a story in the book about a guy named Mark Owens, who right. went through this whole ordeal. And he even told you that he thought it was snake oil that right. the expressive writing wasn't going to work. I mean, what, how does that even work? I mean, what, what do you, what do you think is happening in the brain? Um, Cause I really try this, you know, when I'm dealing with any kind of aches and pains. So just when I wake up and I do have like a little pad of paper, I like to write down dreams and right. see if I can remember them. And do you turn, I don't know do if you that does up? anything, but yeah, <laughs> no, I don't uh, tear uh, it up, but that's an interesting okay. piece. You I have, have to try I that. Mean, you can, yeah. You had to tear them up. So just write down what you're feeling at the moment while you're experiencing the pain or just anytime. How, how would I do it? So I just do it once or twice a day. I just write down any thoughts that you have, positive or negative about the pain, whatever, and tear it up. And the reason why you tear them up is for two reasons. One of them is to write with freedom, write anything you want. The second one is to not analyze them because remember, they're just thoughts. And what you're doing, you're separating from your thoughts. If you want to analyze these, quote, issues, where's your attention? 
from a neuroplasticity standpoint, what you're doing, you're reinforcing these circuits that are already lit up. So the writing is just an exercise, nothing more, nothing less. You're simply separating from your thoughts. That's it. Wow, that that is that is really amazing. It sounds like magic, and I'm definitely going to try that. I think I think it's so interesting, just kind of stream of consciousness writing about you what, what you're feeling can I, can and I then rip it up. Story that I mean, these stories sure. keep coming in, by the way. But I just had one come in last week that just blew me away. So I just talked to a gentleman. I've talked to him three times this week. Is that he happened to pick up my book about three years ago? He was working with another physician in the Southern California area, who used the same approach that I did. And basically, the essence of solving chronic pain is feeling safe, which optimizes your body's chemistry. So we started the expressive writing, relaxation, forgiveness, play, all the different things that we talk about in the book and the website. He's had 27 surgeries. He was on high-dose opioids. Six of those were spine surgeries. He's been in severe chronic pain for over 20 years. He has tried a serious suicide attempt that his wife saved him from. And he talked to me, and he's now been pain-free for about for about a year. So I did not think you could go through 27 surgeries and actually come out the other side pain-free. I was blown away. Wow, that sounds miraculous. That's yeah. really incredible. Now, you you did mention you know people that are managing pain with pain medication um, and opioids, and of course we've all heard about the damage that opiates have caused, and many of the people that are currently addicted say that they've suffered from pain or some other injury that's what kind of started off the whole thing right and how do you how do you walk that that tightrope you know as a physician where okay if you're in pain you know you want to manage it in some way and painkillers work great when when they're prescribed in the right way i mean what do you think about that well i have a completely different approach not to be a little bit careful what i say these days because i would tell you when i was doing this on my own in sun valley for four years the pain, the pain medications were never an issue. And the reason for that is I did it backwards. So let's pretend you're my patient right now. Let's say you're taking maybe 100 milligrams of morphine a day. Let's say you were taking some other medications on top of that. So let's say your, your morphine dose today was about 150 milligrams per day. That's a lot of morphine, right? So what I would do, i say, look, uh, we're keeping medications exactly the same. Not going to change anything. We're going to, I'm going to talk to you about pain. We're going to start working on your sleep. Then I would see you back in a week. And I was seeing back the week after that. So what I would do, I would leave the medications the same as far as the opioids. We would start working on sleep. We started the writing exercises. We did physical therapy. But as the pain started to decrease, then they would not want to be on the medication. So I have people on hundreds and hundreds of milligrams of morphine come off all medications, go to pain-free. Remember, the goal here is pain-free, not to manage the pain. The pain does disappear. Now, if you walk in and start fighting with people over opioids from the, on the first visit, what happens is that their anxiety goes up. And anxiety essentially is the pain. Because what happens if you have a threat, mental or physical, your body chemistry goes up, you feel anxious. What anxiety is doing is saying this is dangerous, again, not psychological. So what happens if you start fighting with people over their medications from the beginning, instead of them feeling safe, of course, they feel extremely threatened. And I just never had trouble with narcotics at all. It was the least part of my practice. Wow. I mean, well, what do you think has caused over the years? Just Is that just lazy caregiving on the doctor's part in, in a lot of situations where they're just kind of throwing painkillers at people that, that shouldn't have them? I, I think the issue is the problem is I think doctors are well-intentioned. I do think we're trained very badly in this, plus the business of medicine is pushing us very hard to be, quote, productive. But the bottom line is, is that doctors are not given the time to get to know their patients. So again, we're asked to deal with medications like right now, we don't know the patients, sleep may or may not be addressed. So it's not laziness as much just as not knowing the neuroscience of chronic pain. Again, we actually know the cure for chronic pain is right there in front of us. It's simply a structured, self-directed combination of known proven medical treatments and again, what the business of medicine is pushing, they're actually pushing us hard to do treatments that have been documented to be ineffective, even damaging. So I don't think it's laziness as much. I mean, it's certainly way easier to solve somebody's pain problem than to keep fighting with them about it, right? Plus, it's right. incredibly enjoyable. I mean, my staff and I would come to my clinics every day dealing with patients with horrible, horrible, horrible pain problems. 
but they were so excited when they came out of pain. And we were excited, they were excited. And I can't begin to put into words how rewarding it is to see somebody trapped in pain for years and years and years come out of pain. And not only do they come out of pain, they actually thrive at a level that they've never thrived at before. I have one woman who was in chronic pain for 55 years. She's been pain-free now for five years. But the doctors didn't ask her, she's now 85 years old, when she's in her mid-40s, her husband committed suicide. And five years later, her son committed suicide. So that's stress. Nobody ever asked a simple question of what's going on. So again, remember, when you're under stress, it's not psychological. It changes the body chemistry terribly. And if she's learned the tools to calm down at 79 years old, for the last five years, she's been free of pain. Wow. I mean, it's great to hear those kind of success stories. And that's something that I think needs to change within the, the medical community where doctors take more of a whole body, a whole person approach. And like you said, you know, maybe she wasn't going to be forthcoming away with what was going on in her personal life that was also causing the pain. I mean, who was the pain after dealing with two horrible tragedies like that? But it, right. it really is encouraging here that the outcome was that she to be pain-free and I can't even imagine 50 years of pain every single day that you wake right. up it is just right. unbelievable right you know but there's hope that you can that you can recover from this and you know you've mentioned sleep a couple times which I think is is so is so important and we're finding out a lot more about research into sleep and sleep deprivation and what that causes and I've kind of been on a little journey with that too and and you mentioned also in the book about you know, nutrition and, and diet and things like that. And one thing I found out I was really lacking in was magnesium that was really messing with my sleep. And once I kind of got those, those levels up, my sleep has been great. I mean, you, and you take that approach as well, right? Where you look at right. the person as far as, you know, smoking, if they're doing that or their diet and what things have you found that, that help? The hardest part here is that everybody knows they shouldn't smoke, they should eat better, they should lose weight, right? We all know that. Right. Okay, that's mm -hmm. a conscious thing. Remember, the unconscious brain is 20 million bits of information per second compared to 40. So the good intentions actually don't work. So what you're doing with the tools is expressive writing, relaxation. There's also forgiveness that we haven't really discussed on this show yet. But, I mean, the problem is as you calm down your body's chemistry, <clears throat> then it starts to break down these behavioral patterns. Remember, the behavioral patterns always win. So what I've learned to do is I simply work on one step at a time of actually getting people to do the writing relaxation tools, quit discussing their pain, get some sleep. What happens then, concrete things start to happen. I keep people on the narcotics for a while because I want to create some space in their brain to try to move forward in a healthy way. It turns out that stages three and four, in fact, the solution to chronic pain is actually a primary care wellness book. In other words, you don't solve chronic pain, you actually move into wellness. So what you're doing, you're separating from the pain circuits. And then once you have these obsessive, destructive circuits starting to break up, then you have the choice of better nutrition, better exercise, et cetera. But what doesn't work is mind over matter, positive thinking, trying to do the right thing. So you got to acknowledge the fact that you do hurt, you are miserable, nobody's believing you. And the first step, believe it or not, is actually learning to be with your pain. Because you learn to be with it and quit reacting to it, then the circuits start to calm down. If you fight the pain, fight the anxiety, fight the frustration, then you've actually reinforced them. So there's a very paradoxical process. So the answer is you're technically correct, but you have to get there through the back door. Right. And it's a process, like you said. And you, right. you mentioned forgiveness, and I would like to bring that up because I've been reading a lot about people kind of throw that word around a lot, forgiveness, right. like, oh, you know, I'll just forgive somebody. And, and I personally think that's kind of a process to forgive, but it's powerful to be able to to bring that into your life and go of resentment, which I'm sure are causing anxiety, which are causing pain. And that's something right. you address. And I don't hear doctors talk about forgiveness. There's actually quite a bit of research on forgiveness. And first of all, anxiety and anger are the same thing. Because remember, something creates a threat, your body secretes stress chemicals and you feel anxious, you control the situation, threat solved, you go back to normal, right? If you can't control the situation or yourself, your body secretes in more stress chemicals and you become angry. It turns out that anger is anxiety with a chemical kick. Anger and anxiety are the same thing. And so what happens, anger is a survival skill. It's your last attempt 
to get control. It's destructive, including self-destructive. And so what happens is that if anxiety represents elevated stress chemicals with profoundly negative effects on your body, then anger is way worse. And the research shows that over 9% of people that have chronic pain have not forgiven the situation or the person that injured them in the first place. Interestingly, interestingly enough, the person they haven't forgiven is mostly themselves. So yeah, that what happens when you stay angry, and we all know that we're not supposed to, but we can't seem to help it very much. But when you stay angry, your body chemistry is way off and people get physically sick. And so there's a lot of research on forgiveness, which is not an intellectual exercise, is more advanced ways to really truly calm down the body's chemistry. Dr. Fred Leskin out of Stanford wrote a book called Forgive for Good. He did four major research pro projects on the effects of forgiveness. He and I have since become good friends. And it's an ongoing day-to-day -day process. We become upset about things every day. I'm, I'm in that same group that never goes away. So you're not gonna get rid of anxiety, otherwise you would die. You're not gonna get rid of anger, it's always gonna be there. Because you become aware that you're now triggered and angry, you become quite skilled at using the tools to calm down your body chemistry more quickly. And so it's learning to assimilate anger and anxiety in your life in a way that doesn't control you. So the forgiveness is actually a very tricky deal. It's just understanding the effects, becoming aware of those, and then persistently letting go of the, uh, of the process. But there's no beginning or end point to it. Right. It's um. It's interesting when you when you like that in in relation to, you know, your body and letting go of pain. Are you familiar with? Uh, it's kind of something that's talked about in Eastern philosophy. That's called being the witness, and it, it's kind of dovetails with what you're saying in rising anger, looking at it and being the witness to it, but not right. attaching yourself to it. Right, exactly. I mean, one of the books I have people read besides Forgive for Good is called The Way to Love by Dr. Anthony DeMello. It's a little two-inch by two-inch book, and it's the same idea. He's a mystic, and basically he's a Jesuit priest, but still a mystic, which is very Eastern philosophy, is that you separate yourself from your anxiety, you separate yourself from your thoughts, from your anger. Then it's a learned skill just to do it through, through meditation and practice. The problem is with chronic pain, you're so angry, so frustrated, that I've I found out that personally and also with my patients, the meditation has not been a very good starting point. It's a great maintenance standpoint. And that's where we put, going back to the expressive writing, um, my wife and I have sort of a joke, but we basically call it mechanical meditation where your thoughts are on the table, you're here. We're in advanced meditation, the thoughts are there, you're here, and you separate from your thoughts. You watch it come in, you watch them leave. But I think the expressive writing is a mechanical note that creates the same separation for somebody who's not as skilled of a skilled of a meditator. Right. No, it sounds like that's a lot more accessible to a lot of people because, I mean, it took me years to even try to tackle a real meditation practice and try to do something on a regular basis. And now I know, you know, a lot more kind of tricks and and tools that you can use. But telling someone, oh, you should just learn to meditate. It's like it's not right. that easy, well, um, you know, to kind of get started. But that's why I I love what you're suggesting with the expressive writing because you can kind of be, you know, I guess if you looked at your brain when you were doing that and the brain of someone who was meditating, it would probably be similar, right, in their right. engagement of those activities. You know, I'm not an expert, but I think so. They they do, have done research MRI scans on kids who are learning to write in kindergarten. And they find out that the act of writing, taking thoughts and converting it into a motor function, is actually a very complex brain activity. Because you're connecting thoughts with motor function with concrete physical changes. It's very interesting how much of the brain gets occupied with writing. Right. And that's something that we can all try and see that it works. I, I mean, I learned so much writing, uh, reading your book, writing, I'm thinking about writing. Um, reading your book is you know, it was really eye-opening for me because you go through and, you know, know your diagnosis. You really suggest that people take their healing and their health into their own hands. And I think a lot of times people are afraid, you know, to ask those tough questions or to say, you know, why, you know, why am I doing this? You even have a part in the book where you tell people, look, if the doctor tells you, you will be paralyzed or back surgery will relieve your back and neck pain 100%, you say that, no, you should challenge that. You know, don't well, 
don't I'll just, just accept things, right? I'll just say time to leave the office. I mean, it's become so common for those sentences to be said. I mean, I could tell you literally hundreds of horror stories of people just having surgery in the first visit, having their lives completely destroyed. I had one gentleman, 29 surgeries in 20 years. Another gentleman, 36 surgeries in 18 months. Another guy had a screw put through a nerve root on a surgery he didn't need, wiped out the rest of his life. I mean, the, every day, just horror story after horror after story story. So please, please, if you get a chance to look at my book, it organizes your thinking in a way to make a really strong decision and challenge your surgeon. Right. Ask those, even if it might seem, you know, you're opening your bands or may be uncomfortable, it, it's right. going to save you a lot of pain and discomfort down right. the road. That's for sure. I mean, I'm so right. glad you're out here and you're sharing this information to people. And what are you working on now? Are you working on another book or will you be out there, you know, maybe doing podcast or TV and radio? Well, I'm doing everything. I mean, I literally quit my practice at the peak of my career to actually bring this message out into the world that chronic pain is number one, solvable. Number two, I'm doing whatever I can do to stop the juggernaut of unnecessary surgery. People are really badly damaged. And I'm doing radio, like we're doing, TV. I'm writing, writing editorials. Um, I'm developing a software program out of Montana that makes it even more of a self-directed process. Uh, the next book I want to write is basically Healing Your Family's Pain. And I would love to do another podcast with you on the family triggers around pain. It turns out that everything we've talked about actually goes out the window if we don't address the family dynamics. Oh, I would love to talk about that because I'm so fascinated with family and stuff and, you know, things come from and how siblings remember things right. totally differently. We could do a whole other show on that. Um, right. But we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately. It's been so great to talk with you and I really appreciate your your patience with, uh, we had some kind of connection uh, blips a little bit earlier in the show, but this podcast is out there for people to download and just what you're doing is so valuable. So check out Dr. David Hanscom, the book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And also find him online, back in that's backincontrol.com and we will definitely have him back on unityonlineradio.org thank you so much thank you very much thank you for listening to unity online radio the voice of an awakening world